In this episode, we speak with Lorian Gable, co-founder and CEO of Figment, the leading provider of blockchain infrastructure. The company has raised over $150 million and is backed by Toma Bravo, B Capital, Two Sigma, and other notable investors. Figment provides comprehensive staking solutions for over 250 institutional clients. The world's largest asset managers, custodians, exchanges, foundations, and token holders leverage Figment's infrastructure and APIs to earn staking rewards. Staking is a process in which token holders can earn rewards by helping to secure a blockchain network. Before co-founding Figment, Lorian was both a serial entrepreneur and corporate executive. Along with his brother, Lorian founded three companies. Ping.com, which was acquired by 1-800-Flowers, Bird on a Wire Networks, which was acquired by AT&T Canada, and Interlog, one of Canada's first commercial ISPs, which was acquired by a large multinational telecommunications provider. Lorian has also spearheaded the exponential U.S. growth of U.K.-based tech company Message Labs as global VP business development, ran a division of Fortune 500 company Micron, and has served on the advisory board of a number of startups. I'm your host, RJ Limba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Lorian, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Good to see you. I'm really looking forward to it. So we talk a lot about investors and, and kind of growth companies on this podcast. You've been part of several companies and they've turned out to be successful situations. I'm going to start off with a hard question. What do you think is the key to building businesses? I think about that a lot. Um, you know, I regularly ask myself in every business, kind of every quarter, would I start this business again? There's sort of a lot of self-reflection in there. I've kind of, because I'm kind of old and this is our fourth company going back three decades when you first start a company, I think you really have to be open-minded and create a lot of optionality because you really don't have product market fit and you kind of have an operating theory, which is inevitably wrong when you first start your company or wrong in a number of ways. And so I think one of the key things is to maintain optionality and kind of say yes early on and then know when to make that transition and focus. So when you have product market fit, things become more competitive, you know who your customers are and then even though you're bigger, you have to actually do less and focus more. And usually that's for competitive reasons, et cetera. And I think that that's like a key transition point in most companies is being really open-minded about what you're doing and who your customers are, and then switching at the right time. And I think getting that sort of inflection point is pretty critical. And then just as an executive or a leader, especially, you know, we're in blockchain and crypto and digital assets, which is a volatile industry to say the least, um, and changing quickly and complicated. And there's a lot of ups and downs. So really, you know, I kind of jokingly refer to my role as chief stoic. So maintaining sort of consistency, calmness, you know, not getting too excited when things are going amazing and not getting too upset when things are, are, are in dark periods or those periods of transition and really just sort of offers a kind of a stability for the company and for your customers. And you know, again, things have been fantastic and, you know, you're printing money and everything's amazing and be like, yeah, okay. And, you know, people say you never really get that excited. I'm like, yeah, I'll get excited. And then when things are looking really bad and you have dark days and, you know, fraud in the industry and stuff like that. And also I get it, this will pass too and we'll get through it and, you know. Here we are. And just being consistent in messaging internally and externally around that. So that's not really like a how to succeed in business type book or philosophy, but I think those two things, at least from a startup perspective, are pretty important. 
Yeah, no, I think that's super insightful. And, and to the point of keeping optionality and, and knowing when to start focusing and, and doing less of other things, do you tend to then, you know, kind of have your calendar cleared? So you're kind of optimizing your ability to think through issues as they come up? I mean, yeah, with respect to sort of optionality, I was thinking kind of like product and marketing, et cetera, for, you know, personally maintaining calendar and, and time to think is a constant battle. I tend to see the role as 50% internal and 50% external and the external has a lot of travel and speaking, et cetera. And I'm doing podcasts like this, which I love and education, stuff like that. So it is tricky to find time to think, you know, we're, we've always been a remote first company, even pre-COVID. And so what we try to do is strongly suggest and certainly the management team gets together in person on a regular basis at basically offsites. And there's a social aspect and you got to like the people you're working with and you can communicate much better in person. And sort of just to, to learn those interactions, but also then to have pretty regular strategic discussions, which are very difficult to do by conference call and by zoom and by slack it's just like difficult to like sit down and create that space so we try to do that in person at least quarterly with the various teams and around the management team so that's kind of how you carve out space because day-to-day it's like very difficult to do that type of deep thinking so mm-hmm. so let's hop into uh, figment and tell us about kind of the solution you provide you know there's been a lot of volatility or perceived volatility in the area you play in so interested to hear maybe we'll tell the audience exactly what Figment does, and then also the macro picture. Yeah, I'll start at a really high level. So you have blockchains, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, which I'm sure your audience is pretty familiar with. Um, And there's been a fairly major sea change over the last five years in the underlying operating system for most blockchains. Operating system, I will get yelled at. It's an improper term. Uh, It's basically how these blockchains are organized and how they create the incentives to, in a decentralized way, to like maintain the protocol and process transactions and create blocks and security. And so I'm referring it to here as an operating system. It's called a consensus mechanism just because everything's a little bit complicated in blockchain. But really, there's two ways of running blockchains. And one is for Bitcoin, it's called proof of work. You hear about these miners that consume a lot of electricity and a lot of compute power, and they compete to produce an X block, et cetera. Works great for Bitcoin. Nothing I'm about to say should be taken as like anti-Bitcoin. I own Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin. You know, don't throw virtual projectiles at me. But over the last five years, most blockchains, including most importantly, Ethereum, have switched to something called proof of stake. And really, there's a whole bunch of technical differences and enabling, you know, less power consumption and better scaling capability, et cetera. But really, the most important difference between those two systems is that like in Bitcoin, you hold your Bitcoin and then there's a bunch of miners who maintain the network. And those audiences are very separate. And there's also like a developer community, but those two audiences are very separate. Like if you hold a Bitcoin, you don't really participate in the network. With proof of stake, if you have 32 ETH, for example, you can basically run the Ethereum network. You can create a node. If you're an institution or a large holder, hopefully you use someone like Figment. If you're technically competent, you can spin up your own node with 32 ETH. Um, And therefore, you basically are a very small part of this larger decentralized network and you process transactions and provide security, et cetera. And in return for that, you share in some of the value created. You get more Ethereum, basically. So that's sort of been a big transition. And we had a theory you know, to be honest, early on that proof of stake was going to matter when we launched, there was only one blockchain that used that methodology. So, you know, we got kind of lucky insofar as proof of stake actually worked and Ethereum made that transition earlier this year. And so that greatly expands our marketplace. So any large Ethereum holder has an opportunity to participate in running the protocol. Um, The infrastructure is pretty complicated. And so we essentially are that outsource provider for large institutional and large individual holders of Ethereum and other proof of stake protocols like Solana or Avalanche, et cetera. And so how has, you know, some of the news that's come out about certain exchanges, you know, FTX and, you know, some uncertainties, how has that impacted what you do? 
Yeah. So, you know, we really operate at the core infrastructure level. We're non-custodial, which means it sounds like you give us your ETH to run the infrastructure, but you don't. So you control those private keys. If you use a custodian, then you would stake to us through that custodian, many of who are our partners. And so you never give us control of the actual tokens. You're basically like allowing us to run the computer infrastructure that you need to participate in consensus. And so that's, it's also called delegating and nominating other words like that. So you don't actually give us your token. So we're non-custodial. Um, if we disappear, there's no counterparty risk of you would just restake or unstake. So 2022 and the first part of, you know, Q1 2023 was, um, I would say relatively difficult on both sort of macro industry perspective, but really in the last quarter, I think you've seen, you know, again, we don't care too much about price, but you've seen, um, you know, price stabilization and, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum have been actually well-performing financial assets and maybe some of the best actually in the first half of the year. Now we're getting some regulatory clarity, even if it's by enforcement and in Europe and Asia, there's actually some like specific legislation that's helpful. So I see things that have been, you know, after a pretty dark 2022, um, things have really, especially at the end of the last quarter, have turned around significantly. And we've seen our business kind of skyrocket in particular around Ethereum staking. So I think right now we're the largest independent provider and that growth continues. And so, you know, thank God for Ethereum. And um, I think we're really sort of seeing that, that the effect of that transition to proof of stake on the business. You've raised a, a sizable amount of money, particularly in 2021. I think you had a couple of rounds. What prompted kind of that decision to raise, you know, big rounds and, and how did you select your investors? Great question. So this is our fourth, the founders of our, we go back um, again, more than three decades, and this is our fourth internet infrastructure startup together. And the first time we have ever top ticked the venture market. You know, I think that probably 2021 was once, at least once in my lifetime, mostly probably by low interest and macro environment and sort of the culmination of software being seen as kind of uh, some dominant business models. And so the markets were very good for raising money. You know, we actually were less aggressive than many of our competitors and many people in the industry who had like crazy seven or eight billion dollar type valuations for early stage companies. And we really, and I think that's predominantly because we selected investors who were great at building software companies at pretty significantly discounts to what we could have raised if we were looking to maximize valuation. So we have some great investors, including Palma Bravo and Senator and, and Bonfire um, through the various stages of the company. Those VCs we chose really you know, valuation mattered, but it was probably four or five on the list. And each one of them at the various stages of the company has been really important in supporting our growth. I have the, I think the best board I've ever had in, in three decades. We talk almost every day, I would say, if not like verbally, but, you know, on a chat group, people sound, oh my God, you talk to your board every day. That sounds horrible. But really, it, it, we have a great working environment. They ask the right and tough questions um, and they're very supportive, even through the industry volatility. So I'm like very fortunate. And, you know, I think it would be horrible to be running a company where, you know, you don't get along with your board or they're not helpful. And so the investors we selected, I think we've been, you know, lucky we made good choices there. And if we didn't maximize valuation, that'll take care of itself down the road. So yeah, my recommendation to entrepreneurs is to really put the valuation part of a term sheet when you're raising money, kind of four or five on the list you don't want to be taken advantage of. But really, you know, if you're successful, then it's really not going to matter at the end of the day that those valuation differences. Well, it's currently the most challenging part to scaling your business. Great question. So I think really sort of going back to the start around the focus, the focus parts of the business. So again, we were very much for the first three years of the company, you know, basically said yes to everything. When I mean, you can't really do that when you scale the business, you need to focus on a few customer verticals. So in our case, it's like asset managers, exchanges, custodians, wallets. So you need to really narrow down who you're focused on. We know we don't support consumers directly. We do that through our partners. 
And then from a product perspective, you know, you kind of always want to build everything and every cool new feature, you really just need to like focus on that and learning to say no is really important. And then also scaling teams is very difficult at different points in time. So when you add a bunch of new people, integrating them into the company, you add more people and slow down, which is like really odd. You should add more people and go faster. And so there's, you know, basically alignment and communication, friction and barriers kind of once you get past 100 people. And so learning to like coordinate that well, I think is probably like the biggest operational like difficulties with scaling a company and you really need to it's very detail focused you kind of think oh i have more people i can kind of step away and things but you really got to read every line you really got to focus on operational execution especially in those growth periods because you can add people and you're like oh we have more people we can do way more or go faster and you actually end up slowing down if you're not careful do you have some insights in how to keep the workforce engaged given the remote culture yeah it's tricky so you know, we originally started because the founders were all in different places and yet we wanted to work together. So we kind of like, oh, we just do this remote thing. And we had worked together before. So we kind of had a lot of those sort of initial issues you might have with someone you hadn't worked before and need to be in the same room sort of solved to start off with. I would say that I've come around 270 degrees that in-person is significantly underrated, especially for engineering and product development. It is very difficult to do like fast, quick engineering product shipping when you have people in like multiple time zones around the world. So if you have a engineering manager in Vancouver and a individual engineering contributor in Poland, it's like very hard to do async work in specific areas like marketing, maybe a little bit easier, but really like when you're like shipping code, it's very difficult. So we're now trying to align people like in the same time zones, trying to get people into a couple of different cities in Canada, which is where we're based, and really trying to sort of slowly refocus people into at least the same time zones or one or two hours to help with that. And really, you got to get in person as much as you can. So I'm like less bullish on remote work in specific functional areas than I was probably three years ago. So mm-hmm. I think you really got to work on it. It's hard to build culture on Slack. You can do it, but you can solve a lot of problems spending 10 minutes on a ski lift with someone than an hour on Slack, frankly. So yeah, I don't underrate the importance of the interpersonal part. So yeah, one thing I was really curious about, and we talked about where you are, Jackson Hole or Jackson, and you're also involved in other entrepreneurial endeavors. I think you have a, a gear shop. What are a personal thing here? I'm also into outdoor gear. What are your favorite products? <laughs> That's a great. Well, I'm a bit of a winter sliding addict. So snowboards, split boards. I do a little bit of mountain biking. I kind of enjoy it when I'm not falling down. So I love my giant mountain bike. There's a great snowboard brand out of Japan of all places called Gentum. And they're kind of like, I don't know if you saw them like Kill Bill with the like the, the sword maker who, you know, spent, you know, built these like amazing like custom swords that she used in, in Kill Bill. But it kind of reminds me of that. There's like a factory in Northern Japan where they really hand make these snowboards and they're actually pieces of art. They're beautiful. The top sheets are beautiful. And so you could put them on your wall in addition to like snowboard or splitboard on them. So I'm kind of like have way too many snowboards and then one, any one person could ever need. So yeah, I kind of have a little bit of an addiction there, but I guess as addictions go, it's, it could be worse and kind of dovetails a little bit. And I think that getting outdoors is also like really underrated, both, you know, has time to think and for human spirit and co- like we, we're not outdoors enough and just getting outside and hiking or in the winter, whatever you can do in the winter is just like really, really important on like mental health, um, physical health, et cetera. So I think it's underrated, you know, most people live in cities these days and sometimes it can be very difficult, but at least personally, I find it like really, really important for like success, both, you know, at home and, and from business and just pure pleasure too. So. And with your kind of entrepreneurial mindset, 
if focus wasn't an issue and if, if time, if you had unlimited time, what other business would you love to start? You know what? I would love to start and permits being available, like introducing people to backcountry hiking and skiing in the winter, which is just kind of an amazing sport, often called touring or skinning um, or bootpacking, where you basically, instead of a lift, you put your skis or your snowboard on your back and you kind of go under your own power and then you ski down and you can be in pretty remote places and away from people. I think it's pretty awesome. Um, you know, there are some safety and danger stuff you need to know about, but you know, I would love to be a backcountry guide or run a guiding company. I know it's like not big, you're not going to get rich doing it, but I think you can really offer like an immense amount of like human pleasure and, and enjoyment and introducing people to the, the outdoors in a way that I think is pretty awesome. So I don't know, that would be my fallback position. I did a backroads tour, uh, not that it's the same because backroads is a little less yeah. wild or less adventurous. I did it in, in May and absolutely loved it. Thought it was phenomenal. And biking too, you know, I don't know. I got into, I recently watched the uh, the Tour de France, a reality show. I don't know if you've seen that. When I really didn't understand like how the Tour de France works. So it kind of got me like those reality, like the F1 reality show kind of introducing. Oh, it was a Netflix one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I, uh, you know, kind of gotten into a little bit more cycling too in the summer and it's a pretty cool sport, especially in the hills and you do climbing and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's, it's good. Last two questions. This veers more towards the personal. It could be also professional, but tell us about a person who has had a profound influence on you. I've never really had idols that have been like in recent history or alive or someone that I've, uh, maybe that's, so I guess I am like a personal fan of the Stoics and Marcus Aurelius as a leader in particular, you know, some of the best periods of the Roman empire with much prosperity and peace. And I think his perspective on leadership is, is really valuable. Um, there's some good books on Marcus Aurelius. Maybe we can put them in the show notes or something like that. I'll, I'll pull up the names. Yeah. So I kind of really have enjoyed sort of history around that time period a lot. And then I have a seven-year-old son and looking through his eyes at a time to see the world actually as it exists and there's pretty amazing things you know we were there was a big windstorm last night and like trees were blown down and wanted to get out of the truck and like look at the blown down trees and the branches and like climb on the trees now you would have just like driven by them been like because i gotta do this podcast and i gotta get to work but actually spending like three minutes you know walking around a, a fallen down tree was pretty awesome so someone who's been dead for two thousand years and then my seven-year-old son are probably the ones where i get the most inspiration from Excellent. All right. Last question. Can you tell us about a charity cause or other endeavor that you're passionate about? Yeah. So one we just did, I don't know if you ever heard of the Murph, which is a CrossFit workout and a number of us in the industry, uh, Galaxy and Coinbase, we put together a group and basically did this Murph workout on Memorial Day in support of veterans sort of post-service and sort of helping them make that transition. So Usually every year, there's a couple of charity events I like to I like to do ones you participate in rather than just giving money. So mm -hmm. I think there's like three or four of us, and I think we raised forty, fifty thousand dollars, which is pretty cool. And then we all kind of virtually did this Murph workout together one morning on Memorial Day, which was kind of awesome. And so we had sort of the interpersonal stuff among three competitors and partners in the industry, and then raised some good money for veterans. So that's the most recent one that you know just happened like a month, month and a half ago. Excellent. Well, we'll include fun. that in the show notes as well, if there's yeah. a link to the- Yeah, there is a Murph. Yeah, it's called, a, there's a big charity around doing the Murph and it's Murph 23. And it's it's a very difficult workout. Everyone should try it. It's pretty cool. Lots of pull-ups and push-ups and air squats and stuff like that. So it was fun. Excellent. Well, Lorian, we're just about out of time. We'd love to thank you again for chatting Great. with us today. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Awesome. Well, I um, really appreciate the time. This was fun. Thank you.